Oliver, good morning. Good morning, Ante. Is this a good day for you? I, I I put a lot of hope into this day. It was a very exhausting day yesterday, actually the last two days, and uh, I feel a little bit more rested. So I'm looking forward to this day. Yeah, I noticed we had some interactions and I've noticed that you had a lot of meetings going on for you. I mean, both yesterday and also something on Sunday, I believe. Yeah, the reason is that um, I'm not teaching at this moment in the semester. I'm not teaching, but I still have a lot of PhD students. So I try to compress all these type of PhD meetings to Sunday and Monday. And then I have a couple of research projects that uh, I usually, because of the international character of them, I need to meet early in the mornings or late in the evenings to satisfy the time frame of my colleagues. So I try to put everything into a Sunday and Monday, and then I'm pretty much done. I mean, yesterday, actually, my last meeting ended at about 10.30 p.m., and my oh. first meeting was at 8, 8 a.m., and I only had about one hour of a break in between. So I was pretty pretty done. So I'm looking forward to this day because there are no meetings except our conversation. Um, looking forward to that. Oh, wonderful. You know, I wanted to ask you, you went to a skiing trip recently. Did you feel in any way rejuvenated as a result of it? Was it good? Did you have some good snow? Uh, it was surprising. We had pretty good snow. Right here in Barron Springs, there was no snow. But uh, up north in Michigan, there were, were was quite some good snow. They also did artificial snow. But even on the outside of the slopes, there was enough snow. We did some powder skiing. So that was uh, really good. It's I'm I'm skiing together with my two girls, so they're they're younger, they're nine and twelve years old. So they're not you know as fast and speedy, and and they don't do the things that I would be doing if I would be alone or with with friends. But it's a nice time to be together with the girls. So that that's what I really enjoy: skiing and doing crazy stuff and um, jumping around. And uh, yeah, it's it's so beautiful to to be with my girls and uh, ski together. Wonderful, uh, you know, and uh, you know, I thought of asking you actually when you think about your childhood, let's say your teenage years or childhood, do you remember any particular moment associated with skiing, like on a skiing trip, like one day that was really special? I'm not looking for any big achievement, but like any moment when you almost felt united with nature, with your body, with the movement. Is there anything that sticks in your mind when you think back? Oh, oh yeah. My, my memories are full of skiing memories, actually, as a, as a child. So we went skiing almost every Sunday, sometimes Saturday in the afternoons um, with the whole family. We were not rich, so we were skiing cross-country skis. Um, and uh, I, I was starting to do skating skis, with, but basically cross-country. And we spent almost, at least in my memory, almost every Sunday uh, out there on the slopes in the Fichtelgebirge. It's northern, northeast Bavaria. And a lot of memories I have there. So I remember, for example, one time we were skiing with daddy. Mommy was at home. Uh, and and my uh, sister, Melanie, she she got lost. We, we didn't know where, where she was. So she stood with another lady. Uh, she was skiing with another lady. And so we arrived at the parking lot and they just didn't come. And they didn't come. And it was these deep winter cold Bavarian days where it can drop down to minus 15, minus 20 degrees in the evening uh, Celsius. So, and daddy said, okay, I need to search them because this can become also a risk of, of life. Uh, and he would um, go out and ski, but he said, Oliver, you have to promise me, so I'm about 11 years old or so, Oliver, you need to promise me always ski with no stop from the beginning of the parking lot to the end of the parking lot, back to the beginning, nonstop. And even if daddy is not coming for another hour or two, this is what you promise me. And he just looked into my eyes, you know, you promise me, so you will continue skiing. 
until daddy returns wow. and well daddy returned i don't know how, how long it uh, took but um basically it was a way to save me from uh, yeah dying of cold uh, so but many, many other interesting memories. I, I really cherish them. Yeah. Uh, that's beautiful. I mean, I you know, also grew up, I think I mentioned earlier that I grew up in Germany and in a town, in a city town, uh, Ingolstadt, which is about 40 oh, yeah. miles away from Munich, more north. So we were about two hours away from the Alps. We would go- The every capital years. of Audi. Yeah, exactly. Capital of Audi and uh, the capital of Illuminati, because that's what I heard that Illuminati started there in Ingolstadt. So some people would, will find that interesting. But we used to go, we used to go skiing all the time. As a matter of fact, we also as a family every year used to go for 10 days to Heiligenblut, which is beneath Grossglockner, the tallest yep. peak in Austria. And we would come before Germany, family from... Then Yugoslavia, we would occupy this whole house and we would spend amazing, amazing 10 days. And I remember one moment, I, you know, we were skiing down a slope. And what I really liked, you know, when you ski down and then in the distance where deep snow is, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, there's mm -hmm. a, I know there's a term for that. But there, there are these uh, mountain huts, right? Yep. Obviously, they are closed. That's where people who are herding, uh, you know, their, uh, their cows, whatever, that's where they stay in the summer. But during the winter, it's closed. So I remember one day, just that moment, it's amazing how we remember moments, right? And they are nothing in particular, but I remember the moment how I went off the skiing slope and took off my skis. It was a hot day, you know, opened my jacket, took some Rittersport chocolate, <laughs> some tea. I had uh, obviously in my thermos uh, tea with me, a sandwich, and just opening the sun and watching Gross Glockner, facing oh, yeah. Gross Glockner. I mean, you know, there's nothing, no event, but I'm always fascinated how moments, like, like moments like that, just get etched into our memory and you feel connected with, with nature, with yourself, with the fresh air. It was so, so beautiful. So I have also have many lovely memories from, from those uh, days. Great. It just triggered. Um, when you mentioned Heiligenblut, it triggered something in me. Just, uh, again, the power of language. Right? I mean, this, <laughs> this, this little village, well, actually, it's a pretty big village, but Heiligenblut, so the holy blood, yes. um, the, the religious undertones. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Some of these villages, the, the name they carry, uh, yeah. it's really eye-opening. Into It opens kind of this door into the religious. So. Right, right. No, definitely. And it was, we had some wonderful time there for many, many years. I would, I would go and had some, some great time. Okay, so some good memories. It's, it's good. Thanks for sharing. Perhaps one day we can dedicate an episode in sharing these life-changing or life-impacting childhood memories that we oh, carry yeah. still with ourselves, that we realized we really something about ourselves, something about the world, something about family. And sometimes we can perhaps do that. That would be quite interesting. I would like to learn more about this. But let's That's let's turn idea. to our to a topic to our theme, Oliver. And and here's the issue: listeners will have noted for sure, or have noted for sure, that we have quite often referenced various philosophical thinkers. We have referenced philosophy in terms of ideas, in terms of schools of thought, in terms of books, and it sometimes might come across that we are taking that as something that is self-evident, right? It is self-evident for us to have a recourse for this. But for many people, it actually is not self-evident at all. Why would, for instance, two theologians 
have so much reference to philosophical thought and philosophical thinking. What do they mean by that? How, did the, how does that correlate to their faith? Uh, what kind of authority do they find in these sources? What kind of inspiration do they have? And so I thought perhaps that we could, we thought, not I, we thought that we could dedicate one or two episodes in a little bit unpacking that idea, the idea of the relevance of philosophy for the Christian faith, for Christian existence, and for generally for existence at all. Because Oliver, I think, I'm sure you will agree that when people think about philosophy, most people, when they think about philosophy, they are, tend to level two charges against it or three charges. First of all, it is incomprehensible. And unfortunately, some philosophers, you know, we have Hegel, we have Heidegger, many of these people write in a way that it is quite inaccessible. You know, uh, if you don't understand Hegel, it is quite okay. I mean, who can understand that? Not to mention some of these more contemporary ones, like Jacques Derrida, who actually revel in their obscuritanism, right? It's almost like a badge of honor they carry sometimes. But I think that two more potentially devastating critiques or critiques that have more traction are critiques that say that philosophy is irrelevant and secondly, that it is dangerous. You know, I still remember when Marco Rubio, who was a presidential candidate, Senator Rubio from Florida, when in 2015 during the Republican primary or primary debates, one at one point said that you know, you know, welders make more money than philosophers. We need more welders and less philosophers. Mm -hmm. Now, he ended up retracting that statement a couple of years later after he read some Stoics. But that kind of idea of philosophy being irrelevant or something that people, some people are doing, it is just like pie in the sky kind of stuff. That's one critique. And the other one is the critique of danger. And that might be dangerous in terms of some people consider on, on the political sfere, for instance, you know, when they talk about Slavoj Žižek, they say, he's one contemporary mm -hmm. philosopher. Oh, his ideas are dangerous, you know, kind of they're left-wing Marxist, you know, what will happen if he accept that? You know, Derrida is dangerous because he's relativizing truth and everything. Rorty is dangerous. These are some philosophical names. But also in, in the Christian faith, as far as Christian faith is as far as the Christian faith is concerned, some people consider philosophy as being very dangerous. So with this longish preamble in place, I wanted to ask you, Oliver, about your experiences. Like do mm -hmm. you for okay, here's a simple question. Let's let's start with this. Do you actually remember the first time you encountered philosophy? Uh, as a text, as an idea, where, when, how, when did that happen? Do you have any memories of that? That's a good question. I, I don't remember really when I had my first encounter with philosophy. So one must understand that uh, being raised in Germany, philosophy is very much part also of your high school education. So it's, it's not a special uh, eventful moment in history that is rememberable really it's just part of your class experience as as i would ask you when when was the moment, first moment where you were exposed to stochastics or where you were exposed to multiplication you probably won't know you might remember when you had first uh, mathematics classes or perhaps perhaps not so i do not remember when my first exposure to philosophy really happened um i could not no i, I could not recover it but perhaps um as a response to your introduction, I just had a meeting last week with a good friend of mine, a very devout Christian um, person, 
and he listened to our podcast, to the last episode of our podcast, and he confirmed kind of some of the legitimacy of your questions or your observations regarding philosophy, namely that uh, he said, well, I'm not sure why you talk about all these things. Uh, they are really not that relevant. So I think we should read more of the Bible and speak about things that are in the Bible. And there, this kind of critique, uh, perhaps not, not sophisticatedly expressed, but still very strongly present, got exposed just a week ago. Uh, and that also thought just a week ago. And that motivated me even more to come and talk with you about this topic, as, as we will do today and, and next time. Um, what is it? What makes people afraid of philosophy or what makes people think that it's irrelevant? And so I think on that level, I never was exposed to this type of critique until I started at the seminary, um, started uh, studying theology. So philosophy as something dangerous, philosophy as something that is um, unnecessary, that's an attitude that I haven't found outside of studying theology, actually, um, in my church environment, in my community, in the family. We never had such an issue with uh, philosophy, even though we were quite a conservative Christian family. Well, thanks for sharing this, you know, and I'm also try to go back in my memory. When was it that I first mm -hmm. encountered philosophy myself? I would imagine, you know, my dad, who was, who finished education at a time where, you know, where he also read quite a bit of philosophy in high school. They had Latin and all of these things. I would imagine that he was sharing some of these ideas even when I was still a younger child without me ever being aware or being able to attach specific names. But for me, an interest, interest in philosophy, and that is, I think, a very important point. And I would like this to be, this is going to be my leitmotif, my guiding thought as we are unpacking this in as you say, this episode and next episode, that it in many ways coincided, like the interest in philosophy in many ways coincided with my conversion to the Adventist faith, to a Protestant sort of faith, right? Mm -hmm. For I was nominally Catholic, and then I became a practicing Christian. And with that in mind, I would like actually to read a paragraph that I recently wrote for a festschrift. A festschrift is kind of a, a book that is produced in honor of professors who have achieved something in their lives and then former students write chapters and all of that. And I wrote such a chapter for such a festschrift. Let me read this because this is really absolutely crucial for anyone who wants to understand really me and the way I teach in the classroom, that is an essential point. So Wh I say that- Who's the Festri for? C can you, can you tell us a little bit about- It was for Quabena Donkor. Oh, okay, okay, nice. Quabena yeah. Donkor, yeah, he yeah. retired and there was a Festri for him. And I will provide a link in the episode notes, I will provide a link actually to that chapter. If anyone wants to read it, they can uh, then further read it because the chapter actually is about uh, worldviews, the, the promises and perils of worldview formation, where I both affirm and critique the idea of worldviews. But here's what I write there. I'm writing about this newfound faith instilled in me, instilled in me a sustained thirst for knowledge, not abated by the conservative ecclesial milieu that surrounded me. Without a theoretical justification for doing so, I intuited, rightly, I believe, that having a deep Christian commitment brings with it freedom of intellectual exploration. And I cannot, uh, just to explain this, I cannot overstress just how conservative my 
church milieu was. We would today call it fundamentalist in many ways. You know, people would not shower on a Sabbath. They certainly would not swim, go through town. Most of them would not shave even. So it was a very conservative, like I have these bona fide or bona fide, right, credentials of growing up in such an environment. So very, very strict. Some people who know a little bit about Adventism will also know about the term last generation theology. I certainly subscribe to that without ever having a term for it. Very into perfectionism, sanctification, strict diet, all of that. So that, so people need to understand that milieu. Okay. And then I say, but rather than narrowing my interests, this conversion, it led me to appreciate literature and the arts in a whole new way. Even as a high school student, I imbued the great controversy thematic with its strong stress on demonic agency in the world, deception and untruth being one manifestation of the principalities and powers. But no, that did not lead me to infer that non-Adventist literature was poisonous and dangerous for my spiritual well-being, that I should avoid the bane of philosophy or detach myself from broader cultural concerns. So I'm about now 16, this is, I'm about mm -hmm. 16 when that is taking place. For some reason, such thoughts never crossed my mind, nor would they have been intelligible to me. <laughs> Why be afraid, afraid if we know him who is the truth? Certainly, there was the influence of my pastor who valued intellectual growth and regularly organized apologetic meetings for the youth in my church, many of whom were university students. You know, he, for example, he would bring, like, he would copy, let's say, a chapter from a book by Jehovah Witnesses. Mm -hmm. Copy it, hand it out. Okay, let's analyze it. What's going on here? What are the arguments? You know, very much cool. like that. Right. Those were yeah. our meetings. Those were our Friday yeah. night meetings. Or it could be that in the context of so socialist Yugoslavia, the religious literature was scarce. scarce. Many of my friends were instinctively open to books that invoked the transcendent and the existential. Thus, I freely rummaged bookstores for fairs such as Plato's dialogues, Khalil Gibran's poetry, and Erich Fromm's essays. So this is how I begin, right? And, and so for me, like, however conservative they were, let's say about like jewelry, I, I know one person was put on, was censored because he drank coffee, right? Mm -hmm. when, when I went to, for my baptismal examination to be baptized, they grilled me for an hour. I had to show every single doctrine prophecies. Then mm -hmm. they gave me case studies. Imagine you're invited to a party and someone offers you Coke, like not the snorting Coke, the drinking mm -hmm. Coke. Mm -hmm. And if I said, would you take it? If I said yes, they would not have baptized me. Mm -hmm. But in that environment, no one would have thought ever to tell me yeah. that I cannot read literature, that I cannot read philosophy. That was not part and parcel of that fundamentalist mindset. So, so that was kind That's of the context, how yeah. it started for me. So for me now, just to conclude this, so nowadays, that is why I have such a hard time understanding, like viscerally, yeah. in my spiritual DNA, hard time understanding how is it that when someone gets closer to Jesus, they close their mind more, right? Yeah. How is the closure of the mind and of interests correlated in any way of getting closer to Jesus. I have, I have a hard time understanding that precisely because of this background experience that I had.
Wow. I mean, for the audience, to just inform you, audience, I didn't know about this um, from Ante. So this is the first time that Ante tells me this type of background to his mm -hmm. introduction to, to philosophy. Um, what strikes me is that it seems to be similar to my experience, that in my community, there was also not a critical attitude towards philosophy, even though it was a devout Christian conservative context. So this is something that I've exposed, uh, that I was, ex this critique of philosophy is something that I was only exposed to, like, like I said, in my studies of theology then when I started an under undergraduate. P part of the reason why I think in our youth philosophy was not a problem had to do with the fact that philosophy was perceived as being functional, as contributing something to society. So, for example, um, when I got exposed to philosophy in my high school, I mean, we read all kinds of stuff stuff that seminarians don't even read here, uh, right? Or, uh, I mean, we read Adorno and Horkheimer. Uh, so, you know, we, we read Marx. Uh, we, we read Erich Fromm, of course, uh, Haben oder Sein. It was part of, of what we were supposed to read. The Myth of Sisyphus um, or uh, Riemann, Grundformen der Angst, the foundational forms of fear. So, uh, kind of where the connection between psychology and philosophy were, were made. And that obviously, when you start with philosophical texts, then you have a critique of not just society, but economy and politics. And so all these things, when you get exposed to them, and they're not, they're not uniform, right? I mean, we, we were reading, we were reading the idealist, the German idealist, as well as the British utilitarists. So we, we just got exposed to the width of philosophy uh, without, I think, an ideological preference from the teacher or from the curriculum. You just realize as a kid, that this is so relevant, that it relates to the real matters of society. It, it is important to reflect, think about after the Second World War in, in Germany, how do we construct a new society, which is not royal anymore, which is not a dictatorship anymore, which is supposed to be democratic, while well, we never really had a good long experience of democracy, except, well, even the Weimar Republic was not a really good de democracy. So how do we construct a new society? How do we construct a new economy? And if you are a devout conservative Christian, you will not find the necessary materials in the Bible that gives you the instructions on how to do this. So you really need to sit together and think deep about these matters. What is a society? What is economy? What is the importance of religious freedom? And how to mix all these things together in a way that actually makes sense and works and satisfies most needs of most citizens. So... You, you just realize from small on, without philosophy, you can actually not run hardly anything. And I think with this exposure, it then later on doesn't make sense why there's a critique of philosophy if you have seen how functional and how important philosophy actually is. Yeah, I think I think this is, I'm really, I'm impressed the way you have had this kind of very comprehensive exposure to philosophy. Mine was a little bit more limited. And it actually comes back to this thing that I said about you growing up in socialist Yugoslavia, you know. So this is a country where religion is being definitely well, it, it was not like in some like in in the Soviet Union or in some in North Korea for sure. It was a way more open society. But nevertheless, you you couldn't just go to a bookstore and find books on theology, religious books. You could go to some perhaps Catholic bookstores and then you would have those. But it was not extensive. So, so for us, anything that had to do kind of with questions of life, questions of meaning and purpose, we were attracted to that. Now, I would like, perhaps next episode, I would like to mine that attraction. Mm -hmm. Like, were there certain hidden 
methodological intuitions or generally intuitions that led me to be attracted? What did I think that philosophy would add or could add to my faith? You see, I never even asked those questions. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps I could do some kind of phenomenological parsing or uncovering of what it was that it did. And perhaps next time, as we think about this very difficult question, what actually is philosophy, we might come back to that. But for me, for some reason, I was attracted. And I remember, I actually have a book here uh, that I bought in a Seren Kierkegaard. It is in a Serbian edition. Uh, and Serbian and Croatian, they are almost identically quite similar. Let me put mm-hmm. it that way, languages. And it was a book by Seren Kierkegaard, Philosophical Fragments. And I remember buying it very early on, and and it was amazing, right? I mean, first of all, you know, in, in socialist Yugoslavia, you're reading someone like that, and he talks about God, and even God, right, is written with small letter B, mm-hmm, uh, you know, mm-hmm. when they translated that. Sure. But he talks about, you know, the nature of religious faith, that this famous leap into, you know, into the leap of faith. Right. That we are using, that is what Kierkegaard develops in that particular book. The relationship between faith and reason, the, the juxtaposition and difference of that. Uh, Jesus versus Socrates, like mm-hmm. Socrates is the midwife of knowledge. Jesus is the bearer of truth, his truth himself. So that was absolutely fascinating. And, and so fascinating. So I went to a school. So our schooling was a little bit different at that time. They were kind of what you had, similar like a gymnasium that you have in Germany, which for us was more like a humanities high school. But mm-hmm. then we already had like a medical high school. So when you finish your high school, you are a nurse, right? I went to an electrotechnical high school. So already, I mean, when you look at the classes I had, I had 17 subjects in my junior year electromechanics, electronics, automatics. I mean, everything that you would do here, right, on a college level. But we also had philosophy. So, and since we didn't have a lot of people who were, you know, in humanities, it was kind of a technical high school, not many people were interested in philosophy. So this poor teacher who was a philosopher, she tried to convey this. And I was always quiet. I was a very precocious, quiet child very shy, never talked, never raised my hand or anything. And so she gave us a test and she, she asked us some questions. And I just, at that time, so I'm about 16, I would say, or 17, I just read Plato's uh, Phaedro, right? And I didn't understand a lot, but I got some interesting ideas and I wrote something in that as part of my answer. And she was, you know, we were you know, creating noise and she was grading those papers while we were, we were in class. And she looks up, Ante Roncic, who is this? And I say, and I'm like, it's me. You idiot. Why are you silent? Why are you not speaking out, right? Why are you not talking, you know? And she chastised me why I didn't speak more about it. In any case, in so class, those like, were those. Why, why you would not in share class, more. Yeah, yeah, exactly, why you would not exactly. engage more in class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So this, those were my early, early kind of steps. And, and they were more about, at that time, less about perhaps society, less about these... I was not sophisticated enough to think in those terms, if sophisticated is the right word. I was not well informed, mm-hmm. but certainly about questions about existence and meaning and purpose, they kind of touched some deep well in me. Um, so, or released the deep well Beautiful. in me. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, when I'm thinking now about the classroom, as you will share this experience, I realize that two 
experiences that kind of made me develop a certain attitude towards philosophy is we had a literature teacher, a Deutsch-German literature teacher, so basic, basically literature, who read different parts of uh, German literature history. And one of the books that we then read as a representation of the 70s of the 20th century was um, Wir töten Stella uh, by Hofmeier, I think it's, it was her name. We, we kill Stella. And nowhere in the book actually Stella gets killed. So at least no, nowhere is a killing scene described. But uh, there's a silent assumption that the reader has to take into the last chapter that she actually committed suicide. And the suicide was, of course, self-killing, but the book is fabricated in such a way that it is clear it's actually the society who has, has killed her. Uh, and it culminated in the, the non-verbalization of actually her, her suicide. The, this book has been very influential to me because the teacher, and, and only in the connection with the teacher, the teacher was somebody I, I really appreciated because he was able to dig deep into the psychology of literature and expose it to us. I mean, again, we are about 15, 16 years old or so. But he himself suffered from depression. So there was always a period of about a month or six weeks in the year where he was absent because he needed to go to therapy. So he had to go through light therapy and other types of forms of, of therapy. And uh, he was kind of the sensitive person in himself. He represented literature as, as an embodiment, so, hmm. so to say, and was able then also to bring us into the world of literature. And at the same time, uh, he was not a Christian. I'm not sure whether he was agnostic or even, even atheist, but he was living together with his partner, not married, but for like 22, 23 years back in the time. He had already gray hair. So, and it just fascinated me how a person can be so loyal to a partner that he's not married to, but live like as if he is married to her and then severely suffer from depression uh, and needs to go through regular therapy for long periods of time and still be so dedicated to his students to, to bring them in, open up the world of literature and psychology and emotions and, and poetry. So the fact that you can be a put-together man in this case and still be able to deconstruct the world, reflect the world, that just amazed me how, how he was not the deconstruction of literature in his own body, except of this, uh, of, of this depressive, of suffering of, of depression. He, he was somebody who walked in awe, you know, who walked with uphold chest, who, who was always friendly and kind, who, who didn't seem to showcase his depression. He did, never talked about his depression. He was just, all of a sudden, he was gone. He was gone for six mm. weeks and everybody knew he's in therapy. And then when, when he comes back, everything was everything was was normal he was the most put together teacher i had so, so to say and at the same time he was so broken and not exposing this brokenness to, to us so that that's one thing that that triggered something in me i'll, I'll refer to it back in a, in a moment and the other one was we had this philosophy teacher um and he was kind of this youngster probably in his 30s early 30s uh, and um had a degree i think master or doctorate in, in philosophy and exposed us to all these kind of philosophical uh, treats uh, be, uh, and he had kind of a system you know we started like with phenomenology disguises of, of by hegel and it was super difficult to parse it i, I had so many diagrams that I, I drew in order to kind of make sense of the different forms and words and phrases that he's using and then bring us to hegel uh, to to marx and how marx you know converts hegel uh, the head to the to the bottom and, and stuff like that and he exposes to this highly critical stuff with which you can deconstruct how we think and how we do economy and so, uh, society, but he himself was again completely put together. He, he, hmm. it, it seems that he used philosophy 
just as an analytic tool, not as an ideology, just an analytic tool for him to see the world clearer. And and if he would have, he was not a revolutionary, right? He, he was just a very normal conservative German citizen. And these type two type of experiences, I think they have informed my attitude towards philosophy. Philosophy is not something you believe. So philosophy is really a tool that helps you to see things that you would not be able to see without the language, without the constructs, without, without the phrases um, and buildings of, of thought. So you don't have to be afraid of philosophy. Actually embrace it, take it as a way to analyze reality. And then what you do on the synthesizing part, that's up to your, I mean, their faith play, plays a big role. But for the deconstruction, I mean, let's embrace philosophy. It, it helps right. you see things. So I think these two teachers they have informed subconsciously an attitude towards philosophy that for me then was not a risk or a danger to faith at all. Well, definitely, we will try to pick up on this because this is actually you already, I think, pointing towards some of the possible resolutions of how philosophy can be meaningfully utilized, adopted, dialogued with uh, by, by seeing it as an analytical tool. And we will come back to that I hopefully next time because I want to I talk about that. And, and I also have to say something else that you've mentioned, that I, like you, got my exposure to philosophy through not just through theology, sorry, through philosophy classes or the philosophy class, but also through literature. Mm -hmm. I remember how profoundly I was impacted by reading Kafka process or we read uh, Hesse's Steppenwolf, and that was very impacted me in profound ways. So we were getting a lot of these, especially a lot of this existentialist literature that we mm -hmm. read in high school really had a significant impact on me. But there was something else, and that is that you mentioned, and that kind of connects a little bit with my, with my experience that I shared um, just a little bit earlier, this idea when I got attracted to philosophy, not really knowing exactly why. I remember reading the autobiography, uh, George Steiner's autobiography. Mm -hmm. He's a famous literary critic, philosopher, all kinds of things, polyglot, just an amazing guy. And he, yeah. yeah, and he writes about how he ended up in a seminar. It was actually a graduate student, um, seminar for graduate students, but he was an undergraduate, so he ended up there at the University of Chicago, where Leo Strauss was teaching a class. And and he made, uh, and he was a, a student of, we know, of, of Heidegger, right? And he made, at the beginning, he made a comment, right? He said something, he mumbled a name, and he said, well, he is strictly incomparable, but of him we shall not speak. And, and then he proceeded lecturing on Plato, right? So, so this is a, a seminar at the University of Chicago, and he didn't get that name. Who, who is this? And he turns to a graduate student, and the graduate student writes it down for him like Martin Heidegger being in time. And then he says in the evening, late in the evening, he went to the, it's, it's a huge library. I think one of the, I think the largest library in the Midwest, I believe, six, seven. When I was there, it had six million books, I think. And mm -hmm. I don't know how many it has now. And so he, he finds the book and he reads the first paragraph you know, from Heidegger's being in time and doesn't understand a single thing, like nothing. Like he yeah. does nothing, right. but he feels this unbelievable attraction mm -hmm. as if confronted by some luminosity, mm -hmm. you know? And he says like, uh, like many mornings 
uh, while I was at University of Chicago, many mornings were prodigal, right? Many mornings uh, I stayed up until very, very late to try to figure things out. And later, and he ended up, as you might know, he ends up writing a book on Heidegger many, 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 many years later. So that is this kind of attraction, right? Something, it is both, as you say correctly, seeing it, it a valuable tool for thinking, for analyzing, but also something that touches more kind of almost like a romantic notion, mm-hmm. touches mm-hmm. some depths of the, of the human spirit. So it's both kind of in terms of pragmatics, usefulness, uh, like a tool, like heuristics is the term, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. As, as like heuristics, right? It's a tool, yeah. but also in this kind of almost intuitive, romantic, speaking to this desire for, for something more. And, and with that in mind, I'm going to ask you, I know that later on you went to study theology in Bogenhofen and all of that. Did, did anything come up for you during your college years in terms of philosophy? Did you build on it or what happens to you when you finish once you finish high school. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Let, let, let me answer this in a, in a second, but I just want to say something about the romance of it, the romantic aspect of, of philosophy yeah. and, and literature. Just imagine this situation. So it's a Adventist camp meeting, right? So we spent the weekend uh, in this Bavarian highlands and a lot of tents there, many people there, speakers there and so on. And I'm kind of bored, some, some young kids, I mean, we're teenagers, you know, we, we're kind of bored. So what would I do? I would meet up with this good friend of mine, um, Leni, Melanie Gelbrich, and we would go into the cornfields and we'd just lay down in the cornfields and pick up uh, Karl Barth's uh, Mann und Frau uh, uh, of, of the Church <laughs> Dogmatics and just read it together. You know, it was just, it was just so beautiful. It was the, the summer wind going through the fields uh, and then... Uh, the, the the warmth was not too hot. You see, somehow in the back uh, background, you hear this church music, people singing some some songs, and you're there just just alone, getting exposed to Karl Barth. I mean, that that's romance. That that's kind of my memories. Or, or a few le- years later, I think now I'm in my yeah 19 years old or something like that, and would meet up with another friend, Daniel Wildemann, who is now a pastor in, in Germany, and we would sit uh, on a on a bench at the Rhine River and uh, read Schopenhauer to, together. You know, he, he's just getting Bible studies and, and uh, getting acquainted with faith. And he would, a couple of months later, would get baptized uh, into the Adventist church. Uh, but we would read Schopenhauer and we would love particularly his, his very descriptive parts and psychological approaches to the man-woman relationship. You know, that's the age where, where you're always interested in how, how that goes. And would just laugh and, and crack up. And uh, so, so that these are kind of the romantic memories I'm having. Philosophy definitely, without philosophy, I think much of my romantic memories would not be present or would have gone a very different direction. Mm-hmm. And, and to add perhaps to this, I think philosophy, particularly when you think about the late teenage years, particularly of guys filled with testosterone and filled with this explorative power, that sometimes can turn quite destructive, you know, into drugs and, Definitely. and uh, Definitely. pornography and TV and, and computer games and stuff like that. If, if you would just replace it for philosophy, you know, we, we would come together as boys, right, and read some of that stuff and just, and just get wild and argue and, and, and so on. But how formative was it actually and positively formative for our later years? So, if you can just jump yeah. into it before you continue this question about college, it really reminds me of something, this kind of reading philosophy and the longing for something more. I, I always, and I shared this in uh, in some other contexts before, I've always 
always struck when I read Augustine's Confessions, the, you know, the great church father, the one of the most important works of Western intellectual history, civilization. When he, you know, he lives this, he leaves his Christian faith, lives this dissipated life, right? Uh, kind of being promiscuous, partying, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And then he picks up a book by, by Cicero, right? The, the Hortensius, which we sadly that doesn't exist. We, that we don't mm-hmm, have a. Yeah, we don't right, have that yeah. book. Sadly, it's got lost in yeah. history. And he says, while reading that book, so he has nothing to do, no Christianity, nothing, but something in him awakens. The the longing for something more, for Lady Wisdom, for Sophia, for wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. That that kind of begins to orient or reorient the ship of his life in different directions. Mm-hmm. So in, in some ways, that is the first or one of the first stepping stones aiming or leading towards eventual conversion in the Christian faith. So conversion was a long time process. So for, uh, it's true that for some philosophy, actually, it destroyed people, right? Some people have lost faith mm-hmm. by reading philosophy. Mm-hmm. And some people have found almost faith by by philosophy because right. it invoked this something more than there's something more to life than just the bodily kind of yeah. you know the hedonic treadmill pleasure all of that there's the life of the spirit of the mind and, and it has an eros to it it has a longing to it it has something yeah. that attracts the human spirit yeah do you do you remember um as you bring up the word eros do you remember the end of walter kaufmann's um critique of religion and philosophy he has this little poem at the very end of, of his no i do not no Actually, actually, it's it's in uh, so the book is trans or it's in English, but the the last uh, poem from 1939 is in German. But it exp- it's uh, specifically addresses this eros, this flame. The, um, I I can just read it here for you. Alle starb in meinem Herzen, was nicht reines Feuer war. In den Gluten meiner Qualen bracht ich's Gott im Himmel da. Nur das flammenhafte Sehnen, speaking about Eros, right? Nur das flammenhafte Sehnen, das sich grad am Brande nähert, hat die Gluten überstanden, noch nachdem sie Gott verzehrt. So, this one. Okay, you have to translate that. It's difficult to wow. translate. Know. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> so, everything died in my heart that was not of pure fire. In the who Gluten meiner Qualen. Um, How do you call when you have like a coal and it's only glimming? How do you yes. call that? Yes. Now that you ask me, I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So in the in yeah. the glimming, <laughs> let's say in in the yeah. glimming um, in the glimming parts of my pains, I brought it to God who is in heaven. Only the flaming longing that is nurtured through the fire survived the glooming even after it was. Oh man. Even after, we probably have to cut the whole thing out. Verzehrt, Gott verzehrt. Even after it was... Devoured. Devoured no? by, by God. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like the, this uh, philosophy, the reason that, that continuously drives you and wants you to find out more of what the essence of life is and what the purpose of it is, everything everything gets killed. But but this longing never gets killed. It, it's always there and it, it's offered like a sacrifice to God. So. Right. That's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful point. It's really lovely. And, and I wonder now, just returning back to my earlier question, sure, when yeah, you think yeah. about this, this flame of desire and your early exposure. Now, once you start studying theology, what's ha- what's happening in that school for you? Yeah. Uh, is what's yeah. happening mm-hmm. in philosophy? Yeah, so 
once I got exposed to my high school education and, of course, philosophy there, I always, as an Adventist kid, I always kind of a devout Christian, conservative Christian kid. I always felt uncomfor uncomfortable some of the ideologies, for example, evolutionary theory. So I, I always tried to fire back and find be very apologetic about it. And that made me be biased quite uh, towards my own faith tradition and didn't allow the arguments of evolutionary theory, for example, to really flourish and to really show its strength. I always kind of compromised the arguments that uh, I got exposed to with my creationist approach to life. But after I graduated from high school, uh, I spent a year in North Dakota on a farm, uh, doing a lot of uh, farm work there and driving these tractors in these endless fields. I all of a sudden had the chance to allow my mind, without a conversation partner around, with, uh, allow my mind to, to be honest with all the information I have gained in the last 13 years of education, so to say. And as I did this, I realized that actually some of the arguments of, for example, evolutionary theory are really good and they really make sense. And I have not allowed myself to actually perceive that. And I realized at the same time that some of my apologetic moves were premature and were actually not holding a lot of argumentative power. And so as I, I'm doing this, I start also utilizing some of the philosophical insights that I have gained in those, what is it, five, six year, uh, last years of uh, gymnasium or high school education and played with the idea that much of it is a construct. You know, much of what I believe, much of the values that I adhere to, much of the apocalyptic worldview I'm having could be simply also rendered or perceived as a construct, as a social construct. Uh, as an epistemological detour uh, to, to ontology. And as I'm playing with these thoughts, what happens is the inevitable, I become agnostic. So um, I realize I don't have any foundation for anything. And I'm trapped in this, in this huge tension between objectivism, you know, I'm just a product of something else, and subjectivism, I am the subconsciously or consciously the creator of everything. And there's no, as, as, you know, as everybody knows, there's no way actually to get out of one or the other box. They are both argumentative, exclusive systems. You cannot find a way to deconstruct objectivism. That, that deconstruction itself already a product of the object, so to say. Hmm. And the same hmm. with subjectivism. Every thought, even the, the clearest mathematical idea that you would say is objective, is you can, again, reduce it to the subjective mind. So I'm really locked into, am I an object or am I a subject? What am I? So what my religious beliefs, were they a product of something, objectivism, or were they just the product of me being a monster, so to say, subconsciously perhaps acting as a monster? So that was really detrimental. And as I'm plowing these long fields of, of North Dakota, I find myself in the solipsism, uh, so, which was disastrous. I, I was, became suicidal because I couldn't have any foundation, nothing of my, what I've learned in church, nothing that I've prepared for baptism nothing of my Christian walk somehow was able to con converse with this, except the philosophy that, that I've learned. And the philosophy just illuminated even more the problem. So, so it was helpful in the sense of that it illuminated the problem, but it was not helpful as it offered a solution. And so I was desperately searching for literature. And I, I, perhaps next time we, we can refer a little bit more to, to, to that. But there were some key works, Walter Kaufmann, one of them, a critique of religion and philosophy, that I was really devouring. So I, I, I need to take it in. I remember, imagine I'm, I'm nine, I think I'm 19 years old at that moment. I'm visiting different universities in, the, in North Dakota in order to find the philosophy department, which of course didn't exist, which I didn't know who would help me. And, and I'm, one of the last stops of universities that I visited was Andrews University. That's about, what is it, 25 years ago. First time that I'm 
at Andrews and I'm nobody, I don't know anybody. I don't have no historical connection with, with Andrews, but I'm going to the Andrews bookstore, plowing through the books, hoping to find something that would help me on my journey. And I'm finding the uh, dissertation of Canale, Time and Timelessness as Primordial Fernando Canale, one of the former professors at Andrews University. Yes. Exactly. Right. And so I think I, I plow through the first couple of books, uh, uh, chapters, pages, and realize, like, oh, oh, this is about ontology and epistemology and its connection. Man, this is this is my issue. So I, I need to I, I need to read this book. And then I'm sitting in the Greyhound, traveling back to North Dakota, and I'm reading the dissertation. I think once while, while I arrived in North Dakota, I have read through the book, and of course I didn't understand anything. So I mean hardly anything. So and then I'm rereading the book, and I'm starting to get some ideas about it, but cannot really place it. I I, I realize it's very foundational, but how does it relate now to objectivism, subjectivism, solipsism, and that kind of stuff? Anyway, so. To make the story stored, I made the decision in North Dakota that the problem I'm facing is a problem that's bigger. It's so big that I cannot solve this in a year. Uh, and so I create this kind of master plan for my life. Perhaps here my uh, my Germanness shines through. That, okay, probably I need about 20 years for this to actually tackle. So my plan was to give theology a chance and study in an Adventist seminary theology for a year. After that, I would continue studying theology at a public university. Uh, after that, I would study literature. After that, I would study philosophy. After that, I would study psychology. And after that, I would study history. And when I'm at about 40 years, I thought, <laughs> I think at that moment, I should be able to <laughs> gauge whether I'm right. a whether there is some positive answer to this or not. Not saying that I would have achieved an answer, but at least I would be able to sense whether an, uh, an answer um, is available or not. And if there would be no answer, I would commit suicide. So that, that was kind of the plan. But I didn't want to follow my emotions and say, okay, this is too big. Let, let's just finish this. No, I thought, no, right. you, you need to step up the game, you know, and you, you need to be like I, I got told by mom and, and daddy and by my teachers, right? The, think about the literature teacher who had suffered from depression. No, I'm not giving up just because I'm feeling something. Uh, I'm only giving up if there is no objective way to actually, or meaningful way to actually answer or tackle that question. Then, then I give up. Yeah. So then I entered theology and unfortunately, this is the last sentence here now, I didn't find a conversation partner. So in fact, people were, um, people were assuming that I had a psychic disorder because I was following the, these questions. Oh, that you, you, oh, that you had a disorder? Yeah, that I had a psychic disorder. Oh, um, and oh. it was actually quite painful. It, it, uh, I think quite a, bit of, um, quite a bit of spiritual abuse took place there. I'm um, sorry to hear that. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I, I hope that perhaps next time we'll be able to, we will be able to pick up on some, a uh, little bit more of your journey, uh, especially about Canal and how that eventually, once you finished theology and started philosophy and, and Doyeward and some of these Dutch thinkers, how they figure into your thinking about philosophy. But it's very, very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing that. Now, when it comes to, like on my end, I think once I get to, to college, we did have one class. Well, I first studied in studying what is now Croatia, and then I moved to South Africa. So I had two different types of experiences. But I remember 
once I was in South Africa, actually what happens to me, I am very much developing a disenchantment with what is now called systematic theology. And I become way more interested in practice. Like mm -hmm. for the first time I took a class on pastoral counseling and suddenly this whole world opens up to me, like perhaps studying psychology or counseling. And so I take a counseling class and then there was kind of a more advanced counseling class offered and I register for that for the next, we had quarters, I register for the next quarter. And then when I come the next quarter to pick up my lineup of classes, I see there is no advanced counseling class on this list of, of courses, but introduction to philosophy or some, some type of philosophy class. And I go to the, it was a smaller college, so I, I held up a college. I go to the registrar and I ask, hey, well, there's a mistake here that the wrong class is listed. And she looks at me and smiles, no, 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 go and talk to Dr. Webster, John Webster, who was a professor of theology. Why, why do I need to go there? So what he did when he saw, and I don't know how he found out, when he saw that I registered for counseling, he unenrolled me and enrolled me into philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, it, must, it must have been like an advanced philosophy because I already was in a philosophy class. That's how he would know, right? And I come to him and says, Professor, like, wh like what's happening? No, 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 no. You have to take this philosophy class. And I had, you know, for me, you know, I was kind of, I was ready to move into different waters somehow. And I ended up taking that class and it completely changed my life. Now, obviously, I'm perhaps putting now too much weight on it. I have now no way of knowing, right? I don't want to exaggerate. But something happens in that class that proved to be very, very important. And later on, I realized that this was actually an essentially a Heideggerian idea, right? That all of these basic approaches, and actually Kanale would also agree, that even the simplest practices that we do, let alone theological frameworks, but practices are deeply invested or within them, deep ontological structures are embedded, right? They're always already some worldviews, basic ontological structures yes. at work at the simplest practices. So very often our thoughts, right, are basically you know, kind of, they are influenced by these things as the ripple effect or whatever metaphor you want to use by these deeply assumed values, perspectives of life, however you want to call them. They're kind of the prosthetics for thought. They function without us ever being aware. And once these scales fell off my eyes to realize that even church practice, even, you know, theology, even preaching, everything that we do is already deeply infused in these worldview commitments later on, the language of social imaginaries by Charles Taylor, whatever mm -hmm. you want to use it, already influenced by that, that I, that, that I changed my, I became again deeply interested in systematic theology and philosophy. Mm -hmm. I realized there's nothing more practical that I can do than to study philosophy and theology. And so yeah. for me, the split that is sometimes happening in the seminary, where people say, oh, you know, theology is theoretical, let's come to the whatever uh, department of practical theology, that's where we do practice. The split of theory and practice doesn't make any sense to me. No. Never made no. sense. Since that moment, it didn't make any sense to me, right? So yeah. I think sometimes to become aware of these underlying assumptions, that it is the most practical thing that you can do. So that is how it 
happened to me in these kind of college years. And eventually, once I started doing my master's and PhD, even though it was in theology, I would say certainly half of the classes mm-hmm. were what we would call in philosophy. So I had always a lot of exposure to, to these ideas because I was deeply interested. So this is kind of a little bit of our autobiography that we shared. And I hope yeah, it will yeah. help people kind of contextualize both in media res, in media res, our our uh, podcast and how we approach things and certainly this kind of recourse that we have very often to philosophers, philosophical language. And I think our task now is to show a bit more how does that sync with your faith? Because both of us are relatively, I would say, conservative Christians. I mean, there's no, no need to hide that. We are who we are. So how can you as such read Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, all of these anti god philosophers and mm-hmm. be even inspired by them mm-hmm. or learn from them. So this is something we want to unpack next time. That's right, Ante. Looking forward to next time. Will be yeah. exciting. And, and and hopefully we will have more time perhaps even to bring in scripture. Uh, and, and perhaps as you mentioned, even last time, Ecclesiastes as this perhaps most philosophical book. And I hope that you can perhaps share some things from that and how that kind of has helped you think about philosophy in relation to faith. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you, okay. for the conversation. Oh, it was my pleasure. And I'm really, really looking forward. We're kind of stopping mid-sentence, but it's okay. And, and so the closure, more of a closure will happen next time. And I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you, Anto, for this great conversation. Looking forward. Okay. All the best to you. Peace, brother. Bye-bye. Bye.